Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 5. We are going to be jumping back in to the book of Esther as we have been going over and going through the past several weeks. So Esther chapter 5, we'll start there in verse, verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand towards Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half my kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the, request, may the king and Haman come to, do, come to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so that we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife to join him. Then Haman described to them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them to allow the the king how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we are so thankful for who you are. God, thank you for your word in which we find wisdom, life, and everything else we need to live the life that you have called us to live. God, I pray that you would be with us now as we sit underneath your word. Please use it to strengthen us and help us to understand and leave changed. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. How much do you desire to be wise? I want you to be honest. If the Lord came to you in a dream as he did to Solomon, and said, ask whatever you want me to give to you, and it will be yours, how many of you would answer like Solomon did and say wisdom? If you could have anything in the world at the snap of your fingers, your answer would be wisdom. Probably not many of us if we are brutally honest. And yet we know that the Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom And this reveals to us just how much and just how significant wisdom is in this life as we seek to follow God. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to give you a basic definition for wisdom. Wisdom can be defined as utilizing knowledge and experience in order to live a godly and upright life. 
Our lives are full of choices for which we need wisdom. And the Bible has much to say to God's people and their relation to wisdom and its counterpart, folly. We should be a people who are marked by wisdom and not foolishness. Within Scripture, there is a contrast of wisdom and folly. We see this contrast in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. It says this, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. The book of Proverbs is also a book of contrast between wisdom and folly. All throughout the book, you see the depiction of the two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. We see this especially in Proverbs chapter 9, where wisdom and folly are personified as two women. Picking up in the middle of this contrast, chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then just a few verses later in verse 13, we read, Folly is a rowdy woman. She is gullible and knows nothing. Now, the reason I bring up this contrast between wisdom and folly is because in Esther chapter 5, what we just read, we are going to see another contrast of wisdom and folly. We are going to see the wisdom of Esther and the folly of Haman. This chapter can roughly be split in half, focused upon these two characters and their actions. The first half details Esther as she goes before the king and prepares a feast, feasts for the king and then Haman. The second half of the chapter focused on Haman and him devising another wicked plan to take out Mordecai. And I think, as readers of the book of Esther, we are meant to note this contrast between Esther and Haman. There are many principles of wisdom and folly depicted here that if we want to be good readers of God's word, we must take heed of. So to foreshadow a touch where we are headed this morning, we are going to have three main points. First, the wisdom of Esther. Second, the folly of Haman. And I'm sure no one will be surprised by the third point, but it's called the providence of God. Now, to reiterate, seeking to live a life marked by biblical wisdom is of utmost importance for you this morning. There are dire consequences and warnings associated all throughout Scripture with living like a fool. And there are sweet reassurances and promises associated with living wisely. We must not be passive when it comes to this pursuit of wisdom. We must actively seek it out, and if we do, the rewards from God will be manifold. Now let's move to our first point, the wisdom of Esther. The wisdom of Esther. In the first half of this chapter, we will see the wisdom of Esther in four ways. First, we see the wisdom of Esther in that she prepares. Look back down at your text at verse 1 says this, on the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. When Esther was challenged by Mordecai to go to the king on behalf of the Jews, she responded by calling Mordecai and the Jews to fast for three days. She and her servants would also fast for those three days, and then she would go to the king. Well, those three days of fasting are up, and Esther is now prepared to stand before the king. And note the contrast between Esther's initial coming before the king and this second coming before the king. The first time she appeared before the king, she prepared for a whole year, and nothing was spared to improve her appearance. The second time, she fasted and prayed just three days prior to her second coming. The first time, she was brought passively before the king upon his request for a new queen. 
This time, she's actively approaching the king uninvited. Esther is taking the initiative the second time. And we are told that Esther dressed in her royal clothing. She didn't just come stumbling into the king's presence. No, she prepared for the coming before the king, first by spiritually fasting and preparing that way, and second, by physically putting on her royal clothes. She dressed the part, in other words. Second, we see Esther's wisdom in that she used wise speech. Look back down at the text in verse 2. And when the king king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the feast that I have prepared for the king. So Esther comes before the king, and instead of dying because of the law, she finds favor in his sight, so much so that he not only spares her life, but he gives her an incredible offer, granting her up to half his kingdom if she so chooses. This is one of the first times in the book of Esther where the readers can breathe a sigh of relief. Things seem to be turning the corner for Esther and the Jewish people. But for our purposes, notice how Esther responds. She says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I have prepared for the king. Her action of coming to the king uninvited might have been interpreted by the king as her being unsubmissive. Remember that this is exactly why she became the queen in the first place. In fact, I think we are meant to see a contrast here between Queen Esther and Queen Vashti from chapter 1. Both queens broke the king's law, but the violations are somewhat opposite. Vashti risked her life by refusing to come before the king when invited. Now Esther risks her life by choosing to come to the king before, or before the king uninvited. Vashti's refusal to come before the king made the king furious. Esther's coming before the king this time won his approval. Vashti's refusal to come before the king led to a decree which was meant to put all women in their place, so to speak. But now Esther is coming before the king uninvited, which could come off as defiant to that very decree. And this is why Esther's speech is perceived as being wise. She communicates in a humble way that exalts the king. If it please the king, let him come to a feast that I prayed for him. She ensures that by her speech, she is not going to be misunderstood, and she's not seeking to defy the king. Rather, she is being deferential to him. And I think we should see this as Esther being wise in her approach. Third, we see Esther's wisdom and that she trusted God. Look back down at your text in verse 4. And Esther said this, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Notice that Esther had already had the banquet prepared. Though her coming before the king was a real risk, meaning It was a real danger for her to appear uninvited in the king's presence, and she did not actually know how it would go. She prepared the banquet ahead of time. This reveals that Esther, in some sense, trusted God in the midst of a great risk. Though there was a very real sense of uncertainty, there was also a very real sense of trust in God and that she was willing to prepare a banquet before she knew the outcome. And fourth and finally, We see the wisdom of Esther in that she strategized. She strategized. Look back down at your text in verse 5. 
Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I have prepared for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You may have wondered as you read chapter 5, why didn't Esther just come out with her request for deliverance of the Jews right away? When she first went before the king and she found favor in his sight, why delay? Why not just ask the king for what she wanted? Why request a feast? And then why not at the end of the first feast, when the king repeats his generous offer to Queen Esther, why not ask for it then? Why request a second feast? Well, these are good questions, and I think you are supposed to be picking up on this as you read Esther 5. Because of the delay in Esther's approach, some believe that Esther is actually losing heart and becoming fearful in these moments. So she delays and asks for banquets because she is losing her nerve and wimping out, so to speak. But I do not think that is what is going on here. After all, Esther has just proven her courage by coming before the king and risking her life. That was the ultimate test of courage, and she passed that test with flying colors. Additionally, as I already mentioned, she was seemingly trusting in God and that she had already prepared a banquet ahead of time. This demonstrated her belief that she would survive the encounter of the king. What is more, the king's response to Esther was incredibly favorable. It's not likely that she would lose heart with such a warm and favorable response from the king. So if she's not afraid, then why does she delay? Why does she ask for two banquets? Well, I believe that she is strategic in her actions because she is seeking to guarantee a favorable response to the king, from the king to her request. She has piqued the king's curiosity at this point. He knows that she did not risk her life to invite him to a banquet. He knows that she is seeking something from him, and that is why he asks what she wants and offers even up to half of his kingdom. So with each delay, the king's curiosity is further piqued. What is it that you want, Queen Esther? Furthermore, the specific wording of Esther's request for a second banquet is revealing to us. One commentator notes this, since Esther phrases her invitation as a conditional sentence, she has called on the king to commit himself in advance without ever hearing the actual petition. If it pleases the king to grant my petition, then come to my banquet. If the king shows up to the banquet, he is essentially saying that he is pleased to do as she says. Queen Esther has strategized so that she could, as best as humanly possible, guarantee the deliverance of her people. So we have seen Esther's wisdom in these four ways. She prepared, she used wise speech, she trusted God, and she strategized. And at this point in the book of Esther, Esther's character has grown, she has matured, and she has given us now examples of wisdom that we can likewise learn from. While not wanting to overinterpret the text in each of Esther's actions, there are wisdom principles here for us as readers of God's word. For example, as Esther prepared for her coming before the king, so you and I must also prepare for our own coming before the one true king. As Esther was wise in her speech, so we must also be wise in our speech and only speak things that build others up, as the Apostle Paul tells us. 
as Esther, trusted God in a risky situation. So we must trust God at all times, especially in the difficult situations that we face. And as Esther strategized on how to deliver the Jews, so it is also wise for us to strategize on how to best share the gospel with others in hopes of delivering them from the wrath to come. There is wisdom in the details. Beyond these specific wisdom principles, though, I want to give you a few more thoughts about wisdom at large. First, as a child of God, we are all called to pursue wisdom. In the scriptures, wisdom is not simply reserved for the pastors. It's not simply reserved for a few select followers of God. Instead, every follower of Christ is responsible to pursue wisdom. This is why God gave his people books like Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes in particular. These are commonly referred to as wisdom literature in scripture. And if you read and study them, you will understand why. In them, we find numerous appeals to wisdom, and when you read them in light of one another and see how they complement and contrast each other, we get a really good picture of what the wisdom of God is and looks like for those who follow him. And each of us, as God's children, are called to pursue God's wisdom. One simple and practical way to start this is for you to read a section of the book of Proverbs every morning. Start your day by adding some Proverbs to it so that you can see what wisdom is and depicted in your life with the daily actions you will have. And if you are interested, our own Dean Sam Burek has just written his dissertation on this very topic. Would love to talk to you about how you can read Proverbs well and how you can grow in wisdom as a daily pursuit. It is no small thing to be a fool according to the scriptures. So we must pursue wisdom as Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes 7 where he says this, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Each of us, you included, have this responsibility. Each of us are called to be wise representatives of the one true king. Second, growing in wisdom will take work. If growing in wisdom were easy, then the church would be a whole lot more holy and a whole lot more unified. If it were If you were to take an honest look at the broader world of evangelicalism, the broader world of conservative Christianity, especially on social media, you would very quickly realize that wisdom does not come naturally to us. It takes work and humility to become biblically wise. Wisdom is like a hidden, valuable gem that you must dig for. Most often, precious gems are not just sitting on the surface of the ground for the random passerby. Rather, It requires work to dig for them. You have to dig and sift and dig and sift. And yet, when you find that gem, you forget about the work it took to get it, and you are fixated with the priceless jewel that you hold in your hands. Likewise, we must do the work of reading and studying our Bibles to grow in wisdom. If you just place your Bible on your bed and you never actually crack it open and read it, then you are just like a man in search of precious jewels who didn't bring a shovel. But as you dig and read, the reward of biblical wisdom will be manifold and life-changing. So take up your Bible and read. So we've seen the wisdom of Esther in the first part of chapter 5, but now we are going to see its contrast in the folly of Haman in the latter half of chapter 5. So second point, the folly of Haman. And we're going to see the folly of Haman in five ways. First, 
we see the folly of Haman and that he was easily offended. Look back down at your text in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman had just left a feast in which he was highly honored. He left joyful and on top of the world. And yet all of that joy was vanquished with one look at Mordecai the Jew, who did not show him the respect or fear that he thought he deserved. He was easily offended. Proverbs 12, 16 says that the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Being easily offended is folly, and Haman is a great example of that. Second, we see the folly of Haman and that his self-control was short-lived. Look back down at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Our first thought is that this is rather unexpected. Haman did, actually did something good. He restrained himself. Praise the Lord. Yet his self-control was but for a moment. And I don't even know that we can really call it self-control. It was more like delayed vengeance. The folly of Haman, Haman's apparent self-control is that it was just a momentary delay before he enacted a plan to get the so-called justice that he wanted. Third, we see the folly of Haman in that he surrounded himself with yes-men. Recall from verse 10 that Haman sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Now, the problem is not necessarily that he called his friends or that he summoned his wife. Oftentimes, one of the best things we can do in difficult moments is seek counsel from those who are close to us. And yet, we must be sure that those whom we invite to give us counsel will not simply tell us what we want to hear. Ecclesiastes 7.5 says this, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Haman listened to the song of fools, but what he needed was the rebuke of a wise man. Fourth, we see the folly of Haman and that his pride gave him a distorted view of reality. Look back down at verses 11 through 13. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which he had honored him, and how he had advanced in, uh, uh, him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the feast, to the, I'm sorry, meet with the king to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So Haman gathers together his friends and his wife, and he lists all of the ways that he is awesome. This could have been another example of Haman's folly, but what is especially sad is that all these people that he gathered together would have already known this information. Do you think his friends didn't know about his status and his position in the kingdom? From everything we know of Haman, he probably boasted about this all the time. And do you think his wife didn't know how many sons he had? By the way, a lot of sons in the ancient world would have been very honoring and, and a sign of prestige and honor. Haman, in other words, had a lot going for him. He had power. He had prestige in the kingdom, and he had honor. That is, he had honor from everyone but one person, Mordecai. And this lack of respect from Mordecai leads Haman to say that everything he has is worth nothing because he had, did not have Mordecai's respect. His pride gave him a distorted view of reality. Fifth and finally, we see the folly of Haman and that he accepted foolish advice. Look back down at verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. 
Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea, idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So the solution put forth by Haman's friends and his wife is not for Haman to deal with his pride, to see things for what they really are, or to go make things right with Mordecai. Instead, they counseled him to just take Mordecai out. Don't actually deal with your problem. Just eliminate the problem altogether. More than likely, this gallows that's mentioned here was a massive spike inserted into the ground with a pointy tip on which he was hoping to impale Mordecai on. Needless to say, their advice was an incredibly foolish plan, and Haman reveals that he is a fool and that he agrees. And not only does he agree, he's joyful in it. He delights in it. Listen to the beginning part of Proverbs 12, and you will hear just how much of a fool Haman is. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. One who is good obtains favor from the Lord, but he condemns a person who schemes. No one can be made secure by wickedness, but the root of the righteous is immovable. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but guidance from the wicked is deceitful. The words of the wicked are a deadly ambush, but the speech of the upright rescues them. The wicked are overthrown and perish, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is praised for his insight, but a twisted mind is despised. When compared to the wise, Haman's folly is apparent. So we've seen Haman's folly in these five ways. He's easily offended. His self-control was short-lived. He surrounded himself with yes-men. His pride gave him a distorted view of reality, and he accepted foolish advice. And once again, there is much for us to learn from Haman's example. In short, whatever Haman did, do the opposite. Haman was easily offended, yet we know that we must be slow to take offense, as James tells us in James chapter 1. Haman's self-control was short-lived, but we must be a people who are marked by persistent self-control. Haman surrounded himself with yes-men, but we must surround ourselves with people who will tell us the hard truth. Haman was prideful, and this led to a distorted view of reality. But we must be a humble people who sees things as, as God sees them. And finally, Haman accepted foolish advice, but we must be a discerning people who reject folly and heed wise counsel. Oftentimes, one of the most helpful ways we can learn from people is by learning exactly what not to do from them. And Haman is a helpful example in that. Now, before we move on, I want to give you a couple of ways in which you can avoid being a fool. First, pursue wisdom because growing in wisdom will reveal just how foolish being a fool is. Because we are depraved sinners, our default is foolishness. If you have had or you have young children or you know and have been around young children, you know this is the case. It is our natural bent to be foolish. When two children are playing together and one takes the toy from the other, the response is almost never reasonable. It is never, now, that was not very nice. Uh, may I please have that toy back? No. Instead, the stolen toy is the sign of the first act of war, and the second one that was wronged goes and gets a toy gun and hits the kid in the head with it. The response is foolish, and it's never commensurate with the crime. And because our default position is folly, because this is what is most natural to us in our everyday lives, 
we often can't realize just how foolish we are until we actually grow in wisdom. But the more we do grow in wisdom, the more we see folly for what it truly is. So pursue wisdom so that you can avoid, avoid acting like a fool. Second, I want to bring up one of the points we've already made because of how important I think it is. To avoid being a fool, surround yourself with people who will give you wise counsel and tell you the truth. It is so easy for us to be deceived in this world by our flesh, by Satan, and by everything else that is thrown at us. We need godly people in our lives who will give us godly counsel. As you know, we are not meant to live this life alone. We need other Christians in our lives that can speak truth into the various aspects of our lives as we are walking through them. One of the greatest ways that we can be self-deceived and live foolishly is by surrounding ourselves with people who either fear us or who don't care about us enough to tell us the truth. A great non-Christian example of this, of someone who surrounded himself uh, with others who were not yes-men, is seen in the example of President Abraham Lincoln. As President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln had the task of appointing men to occupy his executive cabinet. The cabinet was a select group of men headed up that were heading up the various departments of the U.S. government. And to occupy these roles, Lincoln chose men that he defeated while running for the presidency, who disagreed with him on numerous things. This was a brilliant and intentional move on Lincoln's part. He knew that surrounding himself with friends who would just go along with what he said might not actually be helpful for leading the nation through the very difficult and dark times that they were in. Well, in a similar way, but in a more Christian way, we must seek to surround ourselves with people who desire to help us grow in wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So church, surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth. We need truth speakers in our lives. So to recap, we've seen the wisdom of Esther, the folly of Haman, and now briefly we're going to see the providence of God the providence of God. If you've been with us as we have made our way through the book of Esther up to this point, the providence of God has been one of the major things that has appeared in every sermon. God is working behind the scenes to deliver his people. And the same is true in chapter 5. We see God's providence in three places in particular. First, we see the providence of God and that Esther found favor in the sight of the king. Up to this point, King Ahasuerus is not a bastion for truth and honor. He's unpredictable, he's foolish, and he's vain. There was a very real chance that Queen Esther could have been perceived as unsubmissive to the king by approaching him the way she did. Yet we know from Proverbs 21.1 that a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. In God's kind providence, Esther finds favor in the sight of the king and she enacts a plan to save her people. Second, we see God's kind providence in the fact that Haman exercised restraint when he saw Mordecai after leaving the first feast. Once again, Haman is depicted as a prideful and egotistical fool. There is no reason why he should have exercised restraint in this moment. He was on top of the world and had immense power, and it seems very plausible that he could have just done away with Mordecai in that precise moment had he wanted to. But he restrained himself. And isn't it ironic and amazing that the very night after Haman had exercised this restraint and delayed his vengeance, that was the same night that we'll find out in chapter 6 that the king could not sleep, so he has a scroll read to him, and he hears about Mordecai and how he saved the king. 
Now, I'm not going to steal any of Sam, Pastor Sam Stevens' thunder because he's going to be preaching Esther 6 next week. But suffice it to say that I think we are meant to see the providence of God in the fact that the wicked man Haman exercised self-control at just so the right time so that Mordecai could be saved and ultimately the deliverance of the Jews could come to pass. Third and finally, we see the providence of God and the timing of Esther coming before the king. Think of the timing of the book of Esther so far that we've covered. The annihilation of the Jews was set for the last month of the year. What exactly was so urgent about coming before the king in three days? Or why not wait until the king just remembered Esther and invited her into his presence? Why risk going to him when there was a law against that? Well, had Esther delayed, Haman would have killed Mordecai, and the main reversal in the book of Esther would have never come to pass. And if Mordecai had been killed, the major idea of allowing the Jews to defend themselves might not have been brought up, and the Jews' deliverance would still be at question, or would have still been at question. Instead, we see the providence of God in that every detail is planned perfectly to where the wicked are brought low and the humble are exalted. And do you know, for you, Christian, that the same is true? God's providence governs every aspect of your life. From the hairs on your head to the precise number of seconds you live, they are all in the Lord's hands. The greatest, this great doctrine should give us comfort and peace. Hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? You know, one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth far more than sparrows. Brother and sister, take comfort in the fact that your loving heavenly father is providentially ruling over your life. Even in the midst of storms, you can trust that there is meaning behind it all. Nothing is wasted by our infinitely wise God. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the mid to late 1800s. The people who occupied the New Hebrides Islands were known to be cannibals, and the mission was incredibly dangerous. Yet Patton and his wife overcame their fear and decided to try and take the gospel to these people regardless of the cost. Patton records in his autobiography the story of one Mr. Dixon criticizing him and saying, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! To which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, of, in the great day my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. So Patton went, and it was a very dangerous mission. He records countless times that he was faced with danger where it looked like his life might be taken. Yet the Lord kept delivering him. At one point, he's surrounded by a group of angry natives of all kinds of weapons, and they seemed poised to attack at any moment. And yet he recounts this in his autobiography. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club to prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savages of the South Seas. The reason Patton 
was able to take the gospel through cannibalistic tribes and not give up through countless adversity was because he had a rock-solid belief in the providence of God. He knew that regardless what happened to him, it was all a part of God's wise plan for his good and for God's glory. So take hope, church. Your heavenly Father loves you and is sustaining your life as we speak. Your heart is beating because he so wills it. Your worry cannot change things, so trust. Your anxious heart will not make your future any less stable, so rest. Your fear will not falter his hand, so believe. Rest in the providence of your good God. So to recap, we have seen the wisdom of Esther, the folly of Haman, and the providence of God. Now, if you remember, we started this sermon by talking about wisdom and the importance of pursuing it. But I have yet to mention the foundational way that you go from being a fool to being wise. And that is by embracing the wisdom of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The way you become wise is by rejecting the wisdom of man and embracing the wisdom of God in Christ. The wisdom of man will tell you that you are a pretty good person. Don't worry about judgment day. It's a long ways off. You've got time to live your life as you want. Enjoy it. Do what you want. Live a little before you get serious about religion. You only live once after all. But in reality, your life is a vapor. You are here one day and you will be gone tomorrow. How do you know that you will not stand before the creator this very evening? Are you ready for that moment? Don't be a fool. God is a just judge, and he must give you what you deserve for your sin. He cannot simply let you off the hook for the countless sins that you have committed against him. But yet, he made a way for you to be forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus, to bear your sin. On the cross, Jesus died the death that you deserved. He stood in the place of sinners and bore their punishment so that we could be justly forgiven. God does not have to choose between justice and forgiveness. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, he gladly offers forgiveness. So as Esther stood before the king and he lifted up his scepter to grant pardon, so God the Father lifted up his son to grant pardon to sinners like you and me. The scepter has been raised on your behalf. The favor of God is shining upon you. There is nothing for you to do but look to Christ, touch the scepter, and live. Look to Christ this morning if you haven't. Repent of your sins and trust in him, for there is salvation in no other name. Today is the day of salvation. If you live your life in folly, you will die soon and give an account of your life. And the only way to be forgiven is by the blood of Christ shed on your behalf. So this morning, if you want to be wise, pursue the wisdom of the cross. Let the cross change your life from beginning to end and see Jesus for who he is.
Let's pray. Father, we are undeserving of your grace. We don't deserve you to pardon us. We don't deserve you to lift your scepter to save us. Yet you did that in Christ. And God, we want to be faithful. We want our lives to count for your glory, not our own. So God, please help us. If there are people here that don't know you, God, would you please draw them to yourself? Open their eyes to see the folly of living for this world. Help them to see the wisdom of following you. We are loving you, God. I pray that you would grow us in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.